All right, thank you, thank you. All right, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to question eight in the history of philosophy and 16 questions. Um, and tonight's question is, why is life so hard? Or another way to think of this is, what is the nature of suffering? And this is the question that was asked by Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, um, back around 500-ish BC, give or take. Um, so during this period, all kinds of intellectual and philosophical uh, ferment was going on in India and all over the rest of the world, actually. So it's quite a generative period. Um, in this case, we want to look at this central question, because this is really where Buddhism comes from. It comes from this question of suffering. So ju just briefly, you may know, but the, the, the brief history of Siddhartha Gautama is he was the son of a wealthy uh, guy, sometimes a prince or a king or just an important local potentate up towards Nepal, by the way. Um, and his father heard prophesied when he was born that he would either be a great emperor or warrior or that he would be a holy man. And his father thought, holy man, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so, so he decided to sort of sequester him inside the palace grounds. And so he grew up among wealth and plenty and beauty and joy and all of the pleasures of the world. And the theory is that he did not know the suffering of the world, that this is what he had been shielded from. And he gets married, and he has a son. Of course, it's a son because sons are good. Daughter's not so good, so it's got to be a son, right? So he, everything good in the world he experienced, and he didn't experience the bad, of course, in theory. Um, and then one day, he, is, he, he either leaves or is taken out by a servant, the story varies slightly, um, and he sees a sick man, an old man, and a corpse. And it kind of goes, wow, wait a second. All of the splendor and joy and pleasure and plenty and beauty that I've been living in is transitory, is temporary. Um, and then he sees a holy man, an ascetic, who's, who's walking along, and he goes, what you know basically talks to him and the guy's like look you, you can overcome all this just relax and so he decides i'm going to become one of these holy men i'm going to leave the palace grounds and i'm going to enter the world and i'm going to try to overcome this transitory suffering that i see so first thing to note in this narrative um, is in theory he did not experience the suffering and historically speaking, this is completely unique. Uh, historically speaking, most people, most of the time, had no choice. Suffering was simply an is, like gravity. Right? You just experience it as part of your life. But as civilization advanced, and as, as you know, we were able to have sufficient food and protection and safety and security and good clothing and, and you know, gardens and, and, and palaces, it was, became theoretically possible for much of that suffering to be reduced, of course not eliminated, but to be greatly reduced. And so then what he experienced was the shock of that gap. Most of the time for history, the gap between seeing a corpse or a sick man or an old man um, and day-to-day -day life was nothing. There was no gap there. You, you, you saw dead people all the time, you saw sick people all the time, you saw old people all the time, old being 30. 
Um, you know, and, and that, you know, and, and this was just day-to-day existence. No one questioned it. But as civilization advanced, you start having this gap open up. So he wasn't complaining about the pleasure that he was experiencing. He was complaining about, in theory, the transitory nature. This is what shook him up. Oh my God, this is temporary. Everything is subject to this decay, this rot, this death. I don't like that. And so he heads out and he studies, he basically experiences everything. He meditates, he fasts, he lives in the wilderness, um, he starves himself. Um, you know, he, he, he tries everything and nothing is satisfactory to him until finally exhausted. Um, he famously, he gets a little bit of food. He finally stops fasting and gets a little food. And he sits under a tree by a river and he says, basically, I'm not moving until I figure this out. I'm going no place. So for six days, he sits uh, until he achieves enlightenment. Uh, and the enlightenment that he achieves are the four noble truths, which we have here. And the first noble truth is all existence is dukkha. And dukkha, how you translate it, of course, is suffering, struggle, pain, uh, you know, uh, fighting, challenge, stress. It basically means that if you exist, you're subject to all of the stress and strain. And, so, and this is what he was trying to overcome. That's his second major insight. But notice, this is completely different from most other philosophical systems. If you look at the Stoics, uh, the Stoics are like, oh, pain is sort of going to happen, so here's how you deal with it. You, you, you reduce it, but you don't try to avoid it. It's just part of this, this is how you deal with pain. The Epicureans are like, look, if you do this right, you can really minimize pain, and then you can get yourselves to a place where you become more or less indifferent to pain, and you realize that pain is temporary, and pleasure is vast, and that life is good. Uh, Hinduism, of course, where, where uh, Buddha is nested in the Hindu Brahmanic tradition that we talked about last time, pain is part of the cycle. It's educational. It's what you, you, life to life to life to life, you experience pain, and this helps you with your next life because it's sort of enlightening for you. And you go, oh, don't do that. Do do this. It's guiding. And so pain is just part of the process, part of the process. Ah, Buddha says no. Number two, the cause of Buddha, the cause of dukkha or suffering is craving, desire, want, need, uh, holding on to things, trying to resist the transitory nature of the world. When you try and do that, then you get into trouble. This is the source of pain. So if the problem is pain, and he identifies the source, you can imagine where the third one's going to be, right? There's the third one, if you flip your page there. Um, that you can, there is a possibility of addressing dukkha. You, the cessation is possible. It, it, there is a way of dealing with it, and that's by dealing with the craving, of course, which is the cause of the dukkha. And so it is curable. I was trying to think of an equivalent of this, and the closest thing I can come to right now, basically the medical profession and all kinds of research labs around the world have decided that mortality is, a, is just a... Uh, basically an error in, in design. It's a design flaw. And so for all of history, science and medical science tried to help people live healthier, live better, and help them address their illnesses and their sickness, but they did not try and say, we're going to cure death. That's always been sort of that 
outside immortality interesting but you're not trying to cure it you don't just look at it as a problem to be solved this is the breakthrough that Buddha makes he says no no it is suffering is simply a problem and it's a soluble problem we, we can we can do away with this it's addressable see and that's it that's crazy talk of course right so think of life and particularly life in the time of the Buddha Again, suffering, pain, struggle, strife, starvation, hunger, illness was just rife. I mean, much more common than our own age, but the human condition. This is what we call the human condition. And he says, this can be escaped. This can be dealt with. This can be addressed. Um, and the way you can address it, of course, uh, is the Eightfold Path. I always think this is cheating, by the way, because the Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. So the fourth noble truth has eight parts. Um, and I don't, I don't know, somehow it seems like, like the fine print is somehow wrong. But, but, but this is the, the idea. So first to get in your mind is that this is entirely revolutionary. Um, again, it's, it's the only equivalent I've come up with is now is people going, oh, yeah, you can address mortality. We'll fix it, it's fixable. Um, which, for all of human history, that's just sort of crazy talk, or the alchemists were up to this, but nobody really, really believed in it. Um, and now they're just the scientists, like, yeah, no, we think we can pull this off. This is what the Buddha is saying. Look, it might be hard, might be challenging, but the human condition is addressable at its most fundamental level. You can overcome the suffering. You can overcome the pain. It's not necessary. Um, and so he wakes up from this enlightenment, and for various reasons, he's encouraged to teach. So you have to spread this teaching. And so they begin traveling around and teaching, and this has a certain grip. And of course, this produces the Buddhist tradition. Uh, an important thing to note is the tradition of Buddhism traveled. So it went from India to China, from China to Japan, and from Japan and China to the United States and all over the world. And every time it moved, it changed. And so like with Hinduism, there's a, you know, they've got a big bunch of books and you can find a version of anything. There's pretty much a type of Buddhism for whatever you want. Like it's like the, an ever-changing code. It just, um, but the core of it, and to understand its context, it needs to be within the context of Hinduism. So last time I talked about the three main elements of Hinduism, samsara, number one, which is that everything is cyclical. You're born again, born again, born again. Everything goes through these cycles. Even the universe goes through these cycles. In theory, what the Buddha is saying is you can break those cycles. The, 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 the endless cycles of uh, Hinduism are just another, is just another form of the transitory nature of the universe. And that is defeatable. You can't escape that. You become non-transitory, which is pretty much against the core of Buddhism, I mean, of Hinduism. And so it create a lot of problems, because they're like, hey, wait a second, if you can escape the cycle of life, then sort of the whole ethical construct of Hinduism runs into a lot of trouble. Um, the second thing is the Atman, right? That, that part we talked about, that the Hindu belief that there's this core part of you that is your soul or your being that is tied into the universal Brahman, the, the sort of field of life that is the universe and that you're a part of. Buddhism? No, no, no. You've got to let go of that. That is simply another construct that you're holding on to. 
And so it, it, it attacks two fundamental positions within the Hindu tradition. Um, when the Buddha achieved enlightenment, one of the things that was claimed is that he went and reviewed all of his past lives. So it's not that he said there isn't samsara, because apparently he thought there was, because he's in the Brahmanic tradition there, but that that itself is misleading. That what I learned from watching all my past lives was that I can overcome my past lives. I don't have to keep doing this. There is a way to stop it. There's a, there is this possibility. And so it was this revolutionary doctrine, but within the context of Hinduism. It doesn't say that samsara doesn't exist. It says it does exist, but that it can be overcome. That it is possible to move beyond that. And so how do you do this? And you know, then you have the Eightfold Path, which is in some ways very straightforward, in some ways not straightforward at all. Um, first, right understanding, right vision, right un really right understanding. And this you can think about it in terms of, so for instance, uh, you know, Socrates says that no man does wrong knowingly. Right? That if, if you understand things clearly and well, then you will act well. You will act the way you should. And this will reduce your pain and suffering. That, that which when you misunderstand causes a lot of problems. Um, right resolve or right... It's sort of right internal structural organization. Right? Emotional content. Some of these words are difficult to translate from the Sanskrit or the Pali. Um, but, but this notion of, of, of having the right approach or attitude or feeling towards things. Um, you know, if, if you approach things with a good heart, you'll feel better about them than if you, than if you don't, basically. It's not that complicated in a way. Um, then you have right speech, clearly enough. Speak clearly, speak truly, speak as well as you can, um, as opposed to lying, not communicating, misleading, doing the things we tend to generally do with speech, as I always keep talking about, right? It's like the, the attempt to use language not to communicate. Um, Right action. So do things that are correct and do them in the correct way. So it has both flavors. So sometimes we do wrong things, that creates trouble. Sometimes we do what is theoretically the right thing, but we do it in the wrong way, which is a mix of sort of uh, right resolve and right action. Right? You go, oh, this is the right thing to do, but I have a terrible attitude about it, and so I'm going to do it half-assed, and so then bad things. And then uh, right livelihood. So there are all kinds of jobs that were prescribed that you're not supposed to do. But if you're causing pain and suffering and death and poison and exploitation and all that kind of thing, then you know, you're not doing it right. You're not just creating suffering for other people, but you're actually creating suffering for yourself. And so you really need to avoid the kinds of careers or jobs or things like this that are gonna force you uh, to systematically, on a day-to-day -day basis, perform deeds or tasks or actions that are, of course, incorrect. Um, right effort, believing in what you do, doing it whole. Again, not doing it halfway or, or a quarter of the way. Um, right mindfulness, paying attention to the right things in the right way at the right time. And then right meditation, getting your mind orderly. This is, again, it's a perfectly simple list. And it's not controversial. So if it, on its face, you just look at that and go, yeah, this makes sense. And it does in a way. The Eightfold Path makes a lot of sense. 
do right things in the right way, with the right attitude, feeling good about them, and you know what? It'll be a pleasure. You'll probably reduce your pain. But this is not what the Buddha was driving at. It's not a health program. That's the thing. That's how we've interpreted it. We've taken it and said, oh, you put them on your refrigerator, and you go, my mind will be right today. I'm going to do my full effort today. This is not what the Buddha was talking about in any way. It was, it was to transcend the entirety of your existence. You want to pursue the Eightfold Path. And so I'll talk some ways we get this wrong. Um, one is, when I was doing research for this, you, all these things come up that talk about, oh, let go of your material desires. Now this is, of course, sort of vaguely correct, but it's also totally wrong. Because we, we love materialism so much that we think the materialism is the problem. Which in sort of makes it kind of right, but it really it's wrong because being attached to material is the least, that's like the tiny, minuscule corner of the problem. Um, and just letting go of material desire doesn't do that much for you. Um, notice how many of these mention material. Oh wait, not a single one. Huh, isn't that odd? And yet, if you read you'll, the incredible emphasis, of course, the Western texts place on material desire is because, A, we have a lot of material desire, but because we really think that is what it should be about. And it's pretty clear that it's not what it's about. If it were about giving up material desire, when, when Siddhartha Gautama became a mendicant, gave away all his materials, went and lived in the woods, he would have been done. But he wasn't done. He kept going. I mean, that way he found that unsatisfactory. So, so giving up material desires and not giving up material desires, neither of those is good enough. And you can just keep going with this. It's the problem. So the same thing, right understanding. Oh, I'm going to get my mind right. So now I've got something on the, again, refrigerator telling me to get your mind right, which is great. Get your mind right. That seems like a good invocation. Ah, but what does it mean for your mind to be right? Really what it means is to not be attached to your mind being any particular way. Because your mind is transitory. Your mind is a trap. You're not trying to make it good or less bad or healthy or insightful or perfect or great or, or anything. Right mindfulness is basically, and I'm done with my mind. Neither in it nor out of it. Neither concerned with it nor not concerned with it. Um, because, again, your mind is transitory. There's nothing permanent there, so you don't want to get hung up on your mind. And so the mindfulness you need is a mindfulness that says, I don't really care about my mind that much. <laughs> right? It's weird. But it's always this struggle, right? Because it's, it's this very fundamental... It's, I mean, it, Buddha is attacking the human condition at its root. And so all this simple stuff that sounds good turns out not to be all that relevant, really, to what he was on about. Um, Right speech. By the way, he went years without speaking. This is a common practice in Buddhism. Some monasteries, you know, no speaking at all, um, which basically is wrong. Um, I'll just call thousands of years of Buddhist tradition wrong because um, it is. Uh, because and it is wrong because now you're hung up on speech. Not speaking and not not speaking are equally wrong. That's because it's transitory. So you don't want to worry about not speaking. You don't want to worry about speaking. You want to speak. 
correctly, which is not like good. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just this incredibly like challenging. It's where words fail hits right speech, right? Part of right speech is recognizing speech is really sort of not very efficient anyway. It's, it's, it's a struggle at best. But languages we know change. There's a bunch of different languages. It's all temporary, dead languages. So it's temporal, so let go of it. Speaking, not speaking, yes, no, but don't get hung up on it. Certainly don't get hung up on it to the degree that you go, oh, I'm not talking. Because of course, not talking makes you good. And the more you don't talk, the better you are. And now you're the worst Buddhist of all time, right? That's the, this, is the, this is the problem, right? It, it, it's because it's you're hung up on this not talking thing. And the whole point is, don't get hung up on anything. Um, right action, exactly the same. Right? How do you know what the right action is? Well, when you just, you know, just let go. This is always going to come out the same. It's, there is no action that is correct. There is no inaction that is correct. It's, it, it, you have to, again, just sort of abandon the action. The whole, the whole notion of an actor is wrong. So you've got to get rid of that. Notice, again, opposed to the Atman. You don't have this core of yourself that is eternal and real and being reincarnated. If you did, you're back to Hinduism. Um, what you have is nothing. And so when you think about action, you have to think, well, who's acting? Not me. What's it doing? Nothing to do with me. But so if I don't do anything, well, that's wrong too. Right? And so now get rid of me. And then you're getting there. Tricky. Very tricky, all of this. Right? It's, just, it's not that easy. Um, right livelihood, of course, although, again, the easy thing is to stand around and go, yeah, you know, don't kill things to make a living, you know, sell drugs and all this bad stuff, but, hmm, see, what are you attached to? Livelihood? Are you attached to livelihood? See, that's wrong right there, because that means you're attached to your life, it means you're attached to, like, doing things and making things and making money, but you also don't want to get unattached to it, because that's wrong, too. Like, not having a livelihood is wrong. Having a livelihood is wrong. <laughs> livelihood is wrong. The whole concept is misleading you. And so you have to somehow, like, let go of the concept. Right? So that's, it's sort of, it's just that right there at the core. Right effort? Probably the right effort is to not try everything. It gets very Dallas at this point. Just don't effort. <laughs> um, you know, we, we tend to think about ourselves as doing verbs, because that's how our language is constructed. It's a big problem. I am doing verbs. It's like, well, there's no I, and there's no verbs. So your right action should take place in a context without an actor or actions. There. Good luck with that. Right? So, you know, that, that, that yeah. Like, how, ooh. But, you know, I want to do the right thing. See, so in that sentence, I, wrong, want, okay, there's, right, we're right in desire, to do, no, good, oh, good Lord, right? Now here, here it's like the entire sentence is, every phrase, every word is a violation of the fundamental principles of the Buddha as articulated in the Eightfold Path. And so it's, we're like, oh, it's so, it's so wrong. It's so inhuman in some ways. Um, again, right, right mindfulness, right back to the right, right understanding, 
Do you have a mind? No. Well, yes, but don't worry about it. Don't get hung up on it. And the, the thing you can always ask yourself, is this transitory? And the answer is generally yes to everything. Um, and so then, then it's not worth worrying about. Because anything that's transitory is in that samsara cycle. And what we're trying to do is get out of that samsara cycle. And the way to do that, according to Buddha, is to just let go of all that stuff that's subject to that cycle, which turns out to be pretty much everything. Right? I mean, that's, so so you, you know, it's, it's a, a big letting go program. And then right meditation. And this, again, is that translation is the problem. Is how do you get yourself into a place where you can conceptualize these sorts of experiences without having a mind or having understanding or being attached to yourself? Answer, really, really tricky. Um, so there's all these meditation practices, of course, because of Hinduism. This is just lifted from Hinduism. But they're not directed, they're sort of pointed in a different direction. It's important to remember that one of the things that the Siddhartha Gautama did before becoming the Buddha was he was the most advanced meditator in the old Hindu system. He was like a master. He had achieved the goal that you're supposed to seek in meditation, and he decided, no, that's not good either. That's insufficient. He moved on from there. And so the narrative of his life, which is of course apocryphal, but the narrative of his life is one of trying every possible solution and finding each one unsatisfactory and then moving on. And so you have this incredibly profound assault right at the foundation of the human condition. Suffering, hey, let's get rid of that. How? Get rid of everything that you associate with being human. Problem solved. You, you know, it, it sort of, it makes a kind of crazy sense, right? If, if, if you just aren't human anymore, as you understand it, somehow maybe you can get rid of the suffering, the struggle, the pain, the strife at the same time. Um, but what's happened over history is this very straightforward, by the way, you know, four truths, eightfold path, it's not that complicated. In fact, it's incredibly straightforward. It's just totally counterintuitive uh, and really hard to get your mind around. Well, it moved from India to China. And when it did that, it left the Hindu environment. And when it left the Hindu environment, all kinds of things stopped making sense. Right? The, 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 the concern with reincarnation goes away because the Chinese really didn't seem to have much of a tradition of that. And so what started off as a, a religious attempt to transcend the, the, the fundamental principles of the human condition became an ethical, philosophical concept for how to live well. And this is much more what has come down to us. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, th then all this, we can conceptualize all that because it's just motivational books. Right? We, we know these things are all over the place. America specializes in motivational books, right? self-improvement. Now remember, the Dallas has stopped that. Right? The Dallas were like, big on, don't do that. Um, but, but the tradition that came down was like, oh yeah, look at this. This is a nice set of, of ethical patterns that I can adopt to make me a better person. Big win. Nothing to do with Buddhism, by the way, but big win. As, as Buddhism has originally conceptualized. Um, then, of course, from, from China it goes to Japan, where it gets really serious monastic traditions uh, grow up in Japan. 
Um, and it's where we get Zen Buddhism, by the way, of course, comes from Japan, and then that comes to the United States. And so the U.S. encountered this like echo of an echo of an echo of Buddhism. That really has, yeah, how much to do with the original concept of Siddhartha Gautama? It's not clear, but probably not very much um, in, in the final run of things. But if you go back to India, what happened there? Ah, they put all the Hinduism back in. So you'll find all kinds of Buddhist texts that talk about reincarnation and karma and dharma and you know your transmigration of your soul and that your soul is going to come back a bunch of times and that that's the condition and that Buddhism helps you. They just Hinduism absorbed Buddhism right back into it. And so when you read about Buddhism or, or you go look at the text, it's really hard to like unravel which part of this was came down originally. But it looks pretty clear that the Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path was the core. Because we have it in several texts, both in China and in the Pali tradition, which is sort of Southeast Asia, and in the Indian tradition, the Sanskrit. And they all line up. They all match, even though they were written by different people in different places that didn't have access to each other. So it seems like the oral tradition that passed a lot of this down was written in isolated places and agrees in its core. So we actually have, surprisingly and helpfully, access to what looks like the, the, the seed at the center of this. And so, uh, one, keep that in mind. When you read about Buddhism, you really want to know which Buddhism am I reading about, right? Is this a Hindu Buddhism? Is it a, a Siddhartha Gautama Buddhism? Is it a Buddhism from uh, China, which is kind of very different flavors? Is Zen Buddhism very different again? One way to understand, actually, Zen Buddhism was an attempt to return to the original core mission uh, as, as, as they kind of refigured it out backwards in Japan. They're kind of like, oh, wait a second. This seems like we've wandered off a bit. So like the, the Protestant Reformation, right? Hey, maybe we should read the Bible. The Catholic Church was like, no, don't do that. It's crazy talk. Right? And then when they went back to read the Bible, they're like, hey, it doesn't say any of this stuff there. It says four noble truths, eightfold paths. It's like, yeah, we'll forget that. Right? We've moved on or something. You know, and so it really was an attempt to, to, to try and return to that. Uh, but again, at a, at, a, at a great distance when it comes to the United States. Uh, so a, another way of thinking about this, so again, four noble truths, eightfold path, uh, is to work backwards and go, you know, is suffering bad? So, so this is one of those questions that so the Buddha says, not that it's bad, but that it's overcomable. Which you notice is a very different sort of uh, way of addressing it. Do, do you want to eliminate it, or do you just want to do without it? By the way, he's also trying to get rid of all kinds of other things that we tend to like. So it wasn't like a just eliminate the, the stress and this pain that we go, oh, that's bad. Again, it's this whole fundamental strain of the human condition. Um, the Greeks, by the way, I always do like, think the closest analogy I can come is the agon, where we get the word agony from. Um, and the Greeks thought that was great, that you embrace the stress and the pain and the struggle, because that's the human. And so you go with that, and you're like, yes, that's vitality, that's force, that's power. But we tend to go the other way, um, and we say, no, 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 you want to get rid of, eliminate, overcome, not have to deal with all of this sort of 
evil, evil material. But what does this mean in practice? So I was trying to think about this in practice, and so I was trying to think of sort of an extreme example, and I have one ready to hand. So let's imagine, let's imagine you're going in for brain surgery, right? So you're going in for brain surgery. This is probably makes you the tiniest, teeniest bit nervous. Why does this make you nervous? It makes you nervous because all kinds of things you're attached to are now under threat. One, it's your brain. And we associate ourselves very much with our brains, and so we don't want people jabbing shit into it. Now, this is not an unreasonable position, I would hypothesize. Right? Two, surgery, particularly surgery where they cut big holes into your, your, your head or any bones at all, for that matter. Ooh, we're very attached to our physical existence. We don't like the idea of cutting things open, breaking things off, eliminating things. All of that makes us quite nervous. Well, again, this would seem to be reasonable. Then there's the whole pain and struggle of going into surgery, recovering from surgery. Ah, and then probably the biggest one is the unknown. Right? We don't know the outcome. So here's the Buddhist take on this. First, you never know the outcome. You have to let go of that entirely. Imagine you're driving to brain surgery and you're totally worried about this and you get hit and die in a car crash. <laughs> it's possible. It's got to have happened to somebody at some point. Right? And then, which means that you had it all, right? You were wrong. You were just wrong. And that, that sort of, see, but we don't like that. We, we, we even, we like to know that our worries are the correct worries. Because we have a narrative, we have a story, and, and we're in it. So, you, so you, first you just have to let go of that. It's not that it's a scary outcome, it's that you don't know. And if you can overcome the desire to know the outcome, to just let all that go, well, this is theoretically liberatory. And then this notion that having someone poke stuff in your brain might affect your brain. Right? It might affect your sense of who you are, how you think, how you address the world. To which it's like, yes, sure, but that changes. Right? We tell ourselves that doesn't change, but we know this isn't true. Our brains are not working the same way today that they were working when we were nine, or when we were one, or when we were 20, or our brains, the biochemistry changes, the pathways change, neurochemistry, everything changes. But we've decided that it doesn't. And so we want to hold on to whatever version of our brain that we have today. And then there's the physical body, right? Our physical bodies, are our temples are inviolable. We don't want them chopped up, penetrated. We don't want the pain associated with it. Even though, of course, this is all nonsense. We know this happens all the time. And so, again, if we can let go of all those things, if we can get, like, this is sort of what right understanding and right mindfulness is, then there's nothing to worry about because everything you're worrying about is transitory and already changing anyway and probably the wrong thing to think of in any case. Ooh, really hard, though. Right, everybody clear on this? That this is going to be really, really hard. Um, because all of those things 
we hold dear. And at some point you have to ask, if you let go enough, and this is a question that people have asked throughout history, is are you still actually human? Right? What happens to you if you're able to achieve perfect Buddhistic enlightenment? At that point, are you, again, are you actually uh, a, a human being? Because you've transcended one of the fundamental conditions that we associate with being human. So, for instance, non-attachment to, say, friends. And this is a good idea, because we know having friends creates problems. Right? Everybody's clear on this, right? It's a mixed blessing. Ah, but if you, so if you can get over that, on one hand, great, non-attachment, everybody's equal, you see the world through this perfect veil, but now you don't have friends. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting ethical uh, proposition that's being given to us. Um, if you know, the way you, you make effort or the way you view the world becomes so different from everyone around you that you're essentially existing in a different world, well, you're giving up the world, right? I mean, you're giving up the world as most humans for most of the time experience it. Is this still make you human? Ah, it's a real ethical challenge right at the core of Buddhism. Because if you do overcome it through enlightenment, where are you? Notice you're not going to be reborn anymore. This is the goal. So if that's the human condition, you've transcended that. But certainly on a day-to-day level, you're no longer sort of in touch. By the way, this is where the monastic tradition sort of comes from. The idea of, yeah, we want to not be with the humans. We want to cut ourselves off. We're specializing. We're doing something else. We're sort of launching a spaceship, as it were, to, to uh, achieve this sort of new state of existence. Um, which is, again, is this an ethical concept? So people keep talking about, oh, let's build a colony on Mars um, because you know, we want to start over again, give it another try. And it's like, if we start over again, you can try to track this out. Perhaps we do a better society and at some point, then the Martians would really be a different race. Or we can go to Mars and do exactly what we've been doing here, in which case the Martians are us. Right? But imagine a different planet where they really did things like Buddhistic way, or just perfect, or great. After a couple of generations, they just, we probably couldn't even communicate with them anymore. They'd be so weird and so unlike us. And so that, you know, is sort of, to me, always when I read Buddhism, think about it and ponder it, is that this is that fundamental question. If, if the goal is to overcome something that is foundational to the human experience, and you overcome it, are you a human? I don't, I don't really answer, by the way. This is, it's like 16 questions. So this is, this is one of those questions, at least 16 questions, where I go, huh, I just really am not sure about that. Where, where you end up. So, so ch- childbirth, for instance, painful, by what I've heard. All observations suggest it's not, it's not very pleasant, generally speaking. Um, so let's get rid of it. 
right? You know, this is this is the or is it part of a process? This Hinduism says, oh no, that's just part of the process: creation, destruction, life, death. It's all beautiful. It's all part of the process. Buddhism says we're going to overcome the process. No more process. This is the goal. Um, so that, to me, is the core question there. Um, but think about this, is to, just to, to take away with you, when you hear about Buddhism, when you see these Buddhist phrases, when you see the Buddhist quotes that, that come up all the time, um, remember, one, there's about a thousand Buddhist traditions, and two, the core of the Buddhist tradition is not all that happy talk, self-improvement, self-motivational nonsense. Even if it's not nonsense, even if it's a good idea, that's not what, Buddhism is not about good ideas, I guess is one way to think about it. It's about this incredibly powerful insight and attempt to fundamentally alter the human condition and a plan of how to achieve it. And that is, I mean, it's a profound, it's one of the few profound insights, there's only a handful of these in the history of the world, and this is one of them. This attempt to say, look, this thing, suffering, attachment, stress, may not be necessary. And I think we can do away with it. It would be like if Newton said, gravity, ah, I've got a solution. We're going to get rid of gravity. That's different from saying, here's an explanation of gravity. But to get rid of gravity, or to get rid of death, in this case, to get rid of uh, dukkha, again, stress, struggle, pain, strife, human humanity. Wow. I mean, a big project, fundamental project, profound project. Um, but really an ethically like interesting, weird, and challenging one. So, yeah, so let go of, of understanding, I think, I would recommend. Uh, and thank you, Buddhism.